0: Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to our latest vodcast, and this will probably be a three-parter, I'm going to guess. And it's one of the most important topics, and it's also one of the ones that people seem to have the most interest in these days because it's about errors, and it's something we all want to avoid. We all want to be 100% accurate when we read studies, be it CT or MR, MAMO, you name it, but at the end of the day, that's not going to be the case. But on the other hand, we want to minimize our errors, and in many ways, knowing what the pitfalls are really helps you to avoid them. And of course, in the old days, you remember when we had slides, this was one of the most common pitfalls, where the slide was upside down. The good news these days, with computers, you're able to avoid that pitfall because you don't get involved with turning things up and down and around. And in fact, I will tell you, for me to make this slide upside down, it took me like 20 minutes. So some pitfalls actually go away. There are a number of articles, and I'm uh, going to show you just a few quotes. Now, I'm not interested in this article about malpractice suits. I mean, hopefully we all don't get uh, involved in malpractice suits, but just to look at what we see in malpractice suits. Errors in diagnosis are by far the most common cause of malpractice suits against radiologists. Breast cancer is the most frequently misdiagnosis, followed by fractures. Failure to communicate, failure to recommend additional testing, and both uncommon reasons for initiating a suit. So you can see that what this article by Wang is saying that it's really interpretive errors. That's really where all the issues are. And as I mentioned, when you look at the list of the top five, you can see that more and more things that relate to CT are becoming in those top five uh, categories. And it's my opinion that as CT gets better and better, as we see now, in retrospect, you always can find something, and that's the problem with mammography, and that's gonna be the problem with CT. Someone's always gonna to point to a little Ditzel in the liver, the kidney, the spleen, the lung, and say, aha, this was here five years ago and you missed it. So I think uh, with better resolution and uh, archiving, uh, more problems indeed do occur. Some people have mentioned, you remember with mammography way back when, doing double reading, and there's no doubt if you do double reading, two eyes are better than one you will do better but let's be honest we barely can get through the work are doing single readings let alone thinking about double readings so theoretically that's great and we do double readings we check residents we check fellows we do a lot of 3d imaging but to routinely double read every study is just not going to happen Now, in our experience, when we looked at errors that we made or other people made on outside films, we realized that the same errors happened over and over again. And although there are an infinite number of errors that can be made, there was really more than a handful that occurred time and time again. And so in this article, we looked at each of these errors and tried to uh, advise you, advise the reader on how to potentially avoid them. So if you look at it in general, why is something missed on CT? Sometimes it's a poor search strategy. It's an abdominal CT, you're looking at the abdomen, you have some lung windows, you don't pay much attention, and sure enough you miss a pulmonary embolism. Sometimes you overcall or undercall pathology, is the bowel thickened or is it undistended? Sometimes assumptions are made on the review of a data set. You're doing a trauma patient and there's a renal lesion. And it looks so well-defined, and you're looking for a laceration, and you don't put a cursor on the lesion. And instead of measuring what you probably thought was zero, this very well-defined lesion measures 40 Hounsfield units. It ends up being a papillary renal cell carcinoma. We also have the issue is we always like to get clinical history. And clinical history is indeed very important to us, but sometimes it can be unhelpful. And what I mean by that is when they say rule out laceration post-MVA, you're looking for all the things that trauma brings but you're not potentially looking at everything that's on the scan in the same way. Someone would say to you, weight loss rule out malignancy. And we also know that incidental findings occur in literally every organ and every anatomic zone. And the question then is, what's important versus what's not important? You can make mistakes in either direction. And as we said, when you look at solutions, being aware of pitfalls, what they are in just that alone really improves your capability. I think, as I'll show you, moving away from just looking at axial images to even looking at simple coronals and sagittals can be very helpful for a range of pathologies. And I think looking at the next generation, if it ever comes, I've been saying this for years, of workstations, where her hopefully workflow will indeed change with new advanced visualization tools, as in real-time 3D rendering, will potentially make our job easier in that regard as well. So let me start off with a few questions. Do you need to look at the full field of view on a ct scan and if so when now you remember way back when when cardiac ct came along the cardiologist who wanted to read the ct said we don't need to look at the lungs obviously they don't know how to look at the lungs but we don't need to look at the lungs because it's a cardiac ct we asked you about the heart we don't care about the lungs well you remember there were some arguments and the smarter heads prevailed and it was clear that Patients who are getting a cardiac CT are in the age often where patients have incidental lung cancers and you need to look at the full field of view. I was on that committee and I remember this comment, or at least in my mind, and no one made this comment. We all do and have done for 40 years T spines and L spines and even sacral CTs and you target the images over the spine and you never routinely reconstruct the full field of view. Now, is that a problem? can you miss things? And I once started writing the article, but those were the days when it was slow to reconstruct and asking them to reconstruct the full data sets was painful. But this article by Lee just recently, reviewing the full field of view from lumbar spine CT will result in a detection of a small number of substantial extraspinal pathologic findings in addition to many benign incidental findings. And goes on to say that Extraspinal findings were present in 40% of adult outpatients undergoing LSCT exams for low back pain, most of which were classified as benign and needed no further evaluations. But it was that full field of view that allowed us to see them in the majority of cases. And although most of these things are going to be incidental, renal cysts, for example, hepatic cysts, In other cases, you picked up renal cell carcinomas and transitional cell carcinomas and CLL and sarcoid and abdominal aortic aneurysms. And so in about 4% of their patients, significant findings would have been missed if you didn't do a full field of view. So again, you see, you need to change your practice. You need to look at the full field of view. Every once in a while, we compliment someone who looked at a spine CT or a spine MR and said, oh, I think there's something outside the spine that may be of importance and get a CT or an MR to look at it. But that's something that should not be a rare event. Someone needs to be looking all the time. Now again, the criticism or the potential issues with that, you will be calling a lot of incidental things potentially. You may have some overcalls, But again, it's a catch-22. Next question, do you need to look at a topogram on all cases of CT scanning? Everyone gets a topogram because that's how you set up the CT scan. But the question is, do you need to look at it? I think in the old days of CT when we had film, the topogram was the first and last image. The first was a true topogram. The last was with the lines of all of the images we scanned. But these days, the topogram sits by itself and it would be painful to open it, so most people do not open it. There's an article coming out in HAR by Dr. Leonard Berlin that makes the point that you do need to look at the topogram. Uh, because there can be significant information that's missed if you don't look at the topogram. And yes, people say sometimes they'll look at the topogram when there's a question on the CT about particularly foreign matter or a tube. But the question is, do you need to look at it 100% of the time? And so there's an article by Pam Johnson at Hopkins. It's coming out with that Berlin editorial. Over 2000, Scalfi was reviewed by two very experienced plain film radiologists, to look at whether they would find anything important and then look to see if that was shown on the CT scan. So major findings were identified in 13% uh, and 23% of the two different readers. Most findings were confirmed or refuted by the CT scan, okay? You thought there might be something in the mediastinum, in the abdomen. There was or there wasn't, but the CT gave all the information. So in those cases, the plain films added nothing. However, In a number of cases, the major findings were not within the CT field of view and would have been missed if you didn't look at the topogram. These included cardiomegaly and non-chest CT scout views, fractures, metastasis, AVN, uh, dilated bowel, and dilated aorta. So again, one of the challenges is, do you need to look at the topogram? And although it's only a small percent of patients, the answer is yes, should you look at the topogram. Okay, again, something else to consider when you're doing your reading. Just one little change in practice may indeed be very important for you and very important for your patient. The case that Dr. Berlin speaks about, and I'll let you read his article, is a multimillion-dollar lawsuit for a head CT where the head CT axials were negative, even in retrospect, but the topogram was an obvious fracture. So, again, perhaps in certain scenarios, head trauma surely, you need to look at the topogram, but perhaps in the abdomen and chest, you need to do it as well. Okay, what else? What about your PAC system? Now, no one loves their PAC systems. Whatever company will have Siemens, GE, McKesson, uh, Vital Images, you name it, everybody hates their PACS. Okay, that's really simple. The question I ask is, is your PACS a source for missing studies? Now, our PAC system and Hopkins are about to get a new PAC system. And to be fair, our Imagine PAC system is 10 years old and it was not made for the era of uh, 128 or 264 slice CT with the thousands of slices. But the PACS system drives me crazy. Sometimes old films do not appear, and so no comparisons are made. I didn't know the old films existed. The computer thought maybe I don't want to see them. Sometimes retrieval of the old studies is so slow that the radiologist doesn't review them. And sometimes information from old studies is not immediately available, and you need to go to a separate system. And again, the more steps you need to take, the more likely mistakes are going to happen. In many institutions, the PAC systems and their capabilities poses a significant risk for the interpretation of CT scans. Often the PAC systems are too slow, so you're not looking at thin sections with PE, you're looking at thin, thick sections, and you could miss things. Also, the interfaces are so poor, it's like running a 20-year-old Mac. You know. A Mac is a Mac, you could say, but you know, you're going back to a Mac 2 versus a Mac Pro is probably uh, going to be substantially different. Now another source of error is communications. Now as radiologists, we know the importance of communications and I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but this article does make the point that is somewhat troublesome. This was a consultation in a major radiology center, a tertiary referral center saying that review of the studies led to management change in 30% of cancer patients. Okay, well, that's a lot of numbers. And provided important information in 50%? Were the initial radiologists that bad or were the follow-up radiologists that good? What was the problem? And it was across a range of things, lung cancer being the most common, but then breast and colon and pancreas. And in reading the article, I was curious where the errors came from. But look at this statement. It should be emphasized that we did not measure the quality of the radiology reports, and we did not carry any comparison between the original and interpretive reports. Original reports were not available at the time of the conference. Well, how can you say something was missed if you don't have the reports? Well, we we went by what the the, um, oncologist said, not what the radiologist said, because at the end of the day, the management decision is made by the oncologist, and it's his opinion that counts. Now, that has to be one of the scariest things. That means the oncologist is looking at the films or cursory looking at the report, and that's how the patient is managed. So again, you can see who to blame in this, the radiologist, the oncologist, the communication network. I don't know what the issue was or wasn't, but you can see communication is critical. And you can categorize this article by Brooke, communication errors into three categories, documentation, communication of inaccurate or incomplete information, or just plain failures. Whatever the issue is, that is a significant problem for all of us, and we need to make certain our clinicians are getting the reports in a timely fashion, but also that they're reviewing them. Have you ever looked at your information systems to see how many of the reports are never even opened? Could be a scary question. Well, let's get more specific. And What I'm going to do now for the next couple lectures is go through a number of different things that we've seen and try to look at some of the pearls and pitfalls. So look at bladder cancer. Now, I've spoken about misdiagnosis for a while, but bladder cancer was not one of the things that I had in my category. Bladder cancer is common 72,000 new cases, 15,000 deaths in the US last year, most are TCCs, uh, and we usually do CT to stage, to look for recurrence, look for complications of therapy, But I never thought of bladder cancer as an incidental finding. And the question is, is that rare or is it common? And if it's an incidental finding, is it seen or is it missed? And is there a liability to missing a very small bladder cancer? And how do you look for these incidental bladder cancers? Is there any reason you would even look? Well, here's some of the things we've learned. Particularly when you go to arterial phase imaging, small bladder cancers can be seen as little bright enhancing zones in the bladder. It can be just several millimeters in size, often very flat lesions. Any enhancement of the bladder wall or off the bladder wall should be investigated further. You have to be thinking bladder cancer. Don't assume a subtle enhancement zone is of no significance. Sometimes you're uncertain, and in those cases, coronal and sagittal can indeed be very helpful. And we've seen misdiagnosis not for hematuria patients, patients' routine abdominal aortic aneurysms. And sure enough, it's arterial phase imaging and retrospectively, you see a small bladder cancer. So you have to be very careful. Here's a vascular case, and there is a small lesion at about seven o'clock. You can see bright, that enhancement, it's about a six millimeter lesion. Very, very obvious. You see it on the coronal view, very nicely. Now you can say, well, what if the patient had contrast in the bladder? And in this case, you can see the lesion well with the contrast in the bladder. Though perhaps you would pay less attention and assume maybe it's just a blood clot or something, but you should call it, but again, it's subtle. Another example, look at this case, posterior bladder wall. Is that partial averaging? Is it real? Well, in this case, look at the patient's sagittal view. You can see it's not partial averaging to, let's say, a prostate or a uterus or anything, It's there, that's a bladder cancer, it's infiltrating. And this case also makes the point that what I think is obvious on the arterial can be more difficult on delayed phase imaging. So if you had delayed phase in this patient, look how the bladder looks. Very easy to overlook that posterior bladder wall lesion, but look at it side by side. Look how obvious it is on the early phase imaging. Now I've seen several lawsuits. Here's a patient who was evaluated for acute abdomen. The radiologist correctly said there was a ischemic bowel. The patient had surgery of the left colon. And now look, which they didn't notice, non-contrast CT, look at the UV junction. There's a soft tissue lesion there, which you can see three years later was a bladder cancer. And that was missed. The study wasn't done for bladder cancer. It wasn't even a contrast-enhanced scan. But in retrospect, that bladder cancer was indeed there. Now, there are a number of other sources of error And I mentioned before about one of the most important is not really looking at an area carefully. So for example, if you had an abdominal CT, how carefully do you look at the lung bases? Are you looking for a PE or just for lung metastasis? Well, I think it's very important to look for both because particularly in the oncology patient, one to 5% of patients will have a pulmonary embolism that's totally unsuspected. But why don't we do this? Why don't we take a break right here We'll come back and pick it up at this point in a few minutes. See you after you get some coffee. Bye.